Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Regeneration. We're so glad that you're here. Um, at Regen, we are passionate about interrupting people's lives with the love and grace of Jesus, and so we hope this morning that that's what you experience as we sing together and hear the word of God preached. Um, and I also, I'm going to steal Kyle's thunder, and I'm going to welcome our newest Regeneration little family member, Leona Lucille, back there in the back with Vanessa. So she's making her first Regen appearance this morning, so we're super excited for them and for their family and to have her be a part of our family as well. Um, uh, for announcements this week, we have um, our check-ins are for Inspiring Minds, so if you have a Facebook account and want to check in and use the hashtag RegenGives, that goes to helping students with tutoring and college visits and things like that. Um, and our next one thing will be in May, and so we'll be at McGuffey um, Elementary School's helping with their celebration of the Arts Night. And so Lindsay, um, who's up on the drums, will be out in the back um, and have different jobs you can sign up to just help hang out with the kids. It's a really fun night, a really great opportunity to bless our community and have fun um, together. Um, and uh, other than that, I think we're, our next feast, I'll just say that really quick, our next feast is going to be Sunday night, May 6th. It's actually going to be at the Byler's house, which is up in Cortland. Um, we are hoping for good weather so that we can be outside and enjoy their backyard and, and have a fire and all of that. So that'll be uh, May 6th at 6 p.m. Um, and then uh, next is going to be our offering. Zach, do you want to come pray for the offering? Okay. <laughs> It's usually been Aaron, so I like had a choice, made a call on the fly. All right. I was just saying it's news to me that something's happening at our house. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> it's good. Um, you guys can bow your heads, close your eyes. Heavenly Father, thank you for being uh, with us. Um, you are the God that is with us through everything. All of our joys, you're the one behind it. Um, all of our suffering, you're the one that walks with us. Um, so Lord, let us uh, help us celebrate you today. Help us um, just take one more step uh, closer in believing the truth that you are. Um, help us spread it, Lord. Um, I pray for the offering today that uh, our generosity... Uh, just helps us reach one more person, um, helps your word reach them and just transforms their lives like each and every one of us have had in, in one form or another. Um, just help us grow today, Lord, through the, through the words that we hear and through the community that we have here. Uh, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. God, I just give you thanks this morning that you always find us. I'm so thankful that you find us, that you find us out, that you suss us out, that when we would hide from you and avoid you and run from you, God, that you just won't stop chasing us down. And so, God, um, I pray for some people in this room that you would tackle them to the ground today. No more religion, no more playing, no more club, that you would... Um, rip all of that away and uh, transform a relationship and affection there. God, thank you for kids that um, scream out and cry because really they are truer to what you are looking for in our hearts than anything else in this room. That need, um, that desire, and that openness, God, may we have that today. Um, help us to hear your voice and do what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Hey, go ahead and have a seat. Um, kids can go back with Miss Caitlin. So kids are going back. Josh is ready. Josh went for it. He just went. And uh, I have like 19 beverages because... Um, the, the weather has been doing this thing, right, where it's like hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, which has led to a constant just flow of crap. Um, so let's see if I can kind of do this without like halfway through the sermon. Um, hey, and if not, I'm going to just go ahead and rub this in. If you are not here for the couples conference, you missed out. Sorry, but you really did. And uh, Bob and Pam McRae, professors of mine, who a number of people said, and I quote, they're younger than I thought they were. Um, uh, they are. I mean, Bob's taught youth ministry for 30 years. You've got to be hip and happening to do that. Um, there were couples here for 30 years. There was a couple that's been married for 49 years that w- walked away kind of learning how to be in marriage better, and it was awesome. So um, we will keep doing these things. We don't have a con- like a conference culture yet as a church, but we're building one, whether or not you like it. Um, and, uh, so we're going to be kind of investing in some of that stuff going forward, women's conferences, and, uh, who knows what we can do with some guys here. So, um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37, Genesis 37, and this is some text that I'm really excited to share with you today. Genesis 37, trying to think if there's anything else I want to tell you. I'm glad to be with you. I'm glad to be with you today. So, um. Do you remember this, there's this scene in The Lion King? So Simba has been hanging out with uh, Timon and Pumbaa for a while, and you've done the montage where he's kind of turned into like an early 20s millennial version of himself, right? And uh, he somehow meets Rafiki, and uh, Rafiki's trying to kind of get him to go back and be the king or whatever, and uh, and... And, and Simba's like, I don't care that my, it's actually, he's very millennial, isn't he? Like, I don't care that my dad died and that my uncle has the throne. It, it doesn't, and he says, it doesn't matter. It's in the past. And so Rafiki responds by whapping him on the head with his stick. And Simba's like, Al, why'd you do that? And Rafiki says, it doesn't matter. It's in the past. And uh, truth be told, that's a lot of the way that we would like to handle our past because what lies in our past, what lies in our past has a remarkable ability to influence our present, doesn't it? Whether that's the stuff that we have done and that therefore we live in shame and and rejection and regret from, or the things that have been done to us, maybe even by our family members, it has a remarkable ability to infiltrate our present. And we'd like to take the Simba approach. We would like to say, I'm over it. It's in the past. What's behind me is behind me. And it doesn't matter. And those of us that know the Bible a little bit better than others can even spiritualize this. And so we'll look at what Paul writes in Philippians 3. Paul says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And they say, see, preacher? There's a guy at Grace Campus from the South. He calls me preacher. I love it. I don't like to be called pastor uh, because when you call me pastor, it makes you feel like I have these holy ears and you can't be honest with me. There are zero things you could tell me that would scare me at this point. Um, but I like—I liked what he called, Alex, when he calls me preacher. I think that's funny. And uh, so you say, preacher, look, there's a verse here that says this whole getting past your past thing is a load of bunk, Right? 
Paul says, forgetting what lies behind, I strain toward the goal. But here's the deal. Go home today and read Philippians 3 and watch how Paul's point applies to us. But the way that Paul is talking about his past and the way that we are talking about our past are very different. Paul is talking about past accomplishments that could gain him credit in God's eyes. We're talking about our past wounds that hold us back. But in either case, Paul's point in Philippians 3 is the same, which is, I'm not going to let anything, how many things, zero things, stand between me and knowing Jesus better. That is his point. Also, forgive me, this thing on my ear, it's, you know, it's not a good Britney Spears mic if you can't pop lock and drop it securely, and I don't feel good about that. I feel like it would go flying, so I'm going to be messing with this. We cannot let anything stand in the way of knowing Jesus, including our wounds, including our past. And this is why we're unpacking this idea that pain from the past cannot stay in the past until it has been healed. Pain from the past cannot stay in the past until it has been healed, until it receives healing. And forgetting, leaving it behind, it doesn't matter, it's in the past, does not work. And nobody shows us that more clearly than a guy named Joseph, whose story is in Genesis chapter 37. We're looking at the book of Genesis, um, and we're looking at specifically one family in the book of Genesis, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, this one family line. The book of Genesis has this like flashy, sexy, mysterious quality, because everybody's like, ooh, it says God created the world, and how did he do that? Evidently, the author of Genesis doesn't care quite so much about how God created the world as much as the dysfunction of this one family, 48 chapters to four generations. And, and the Joseph narrative, chapter 37 through 50, is, is a full quarter of the book, a full quarter of the book uh, devoted, uh, 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 devoted to this one arc, this one story Joseph, who is Abraham's great grandson and the favorite child of his father. Jacob, and it's 13 chapters. It's supposed to grab our attention. Now, Joseph's ancestors, Joseph's families have modeled for us another key truth that what we do not transform, we assuredly will transmit. Starting with Abraham's sin patterns, and by the way, that's what they are. They're not like, let's go to the counselor's office and talk about like psychologically maladaptive behavior. That's what sin is, but it's, it's primarily sin. Let's not psychologize it. And sin like deceit, passive fathers, manipulative mothers, competitive, gross marriages, and favoritism, the, these sins have, were like almost poured in the dot, like it was like dying a river in Abraham, and by the time we get to Joseph, the whole river is colored that color. And now all of this generational sin is about to come crashing down on and around Joseph. Joseph is, I think, perhaps one of my favorite people in the Bible, and I don't want to say characters, because that makes it sound like he wasn't a real person. One of my favorite people in the Bible is Joseph. And one of the things that very much endears me to him is that he cries a lot. Um, the verb to weep, weep, is used 14 times in the book of Genesis, 14 times. And nine of those 14 times, Joseph is the subject of the verb. Now, for those of us who are forgetting middle school grammar, the subject of the verb means that Joseph is the weeper, he is the one who weeps. He cries all the time. He cries all of the time. And, and in this life of this weeping, wounded man, we probably get a clearer picture than anywhere else in Genesis of what it looks like for God to intervene and help us get past our past. 
We see what it looks like in Joseph's life, which we really could summarize as one long disappointment. We see what it looks like to get past our past. You know, Jesus comes and he says, I have come, John 10, 10, that they would have a rich and satisfying life. Being hung up on your past, transmitting these bad patterns that you've inherited from wherever is not a rich and satisfying life. God wants transformation there. I love being around some of these older, uh, longer married couples at the couples conference yesterday because they're talking about how they had to change, in order to have a great marriage, they had to change the patterns they inherited. That's the trick. Joseph's is a story of weeping and wounding, but it's also a story story of just remarkable healing. So um, not all of us were raised in church, and I love that. Um, I think I, dirty secret, I like people that don't like church better than I like people who like church. You're just easier sometimes. Um, And so if you don't know the story of Joseph, I'm going to kind of give you an overview, but I would love for you to go home and read Genesis 37 through 50 this week. And yes, chapter 38, the rape of Tamar is included in that arc. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating story. Joseph is the favorite uh, child of his father, Jacob. This this story begins in Genesis 37. And Dan, there's very little on the screen because I actually didn't have internet at my house this week, this morning. It went, so. Um, Joseph is the one of 12 children. His father, Jacob, his father, Jacob, has four wives, all of whom he has had children with. You can imagine that's a very comfortable Thanksgiving, right? And uh, Joseph is obviously and clearly the favorite of his father, Jacob. It's very evident to everybody watching that that Jacob loves Joseph more. And all of this is proven when one day uh, Joseph receives from his father in the presence of his brothers a really nice gift. No, not a Nintendo 64. Um, A coat of many colors, a royal robe. Listen, it was not a robe that he wore to the bathroom and back. Robes in the ancient Near East were a sign of royalty. And he put, and, jo- and Joseph is there, and his dad puts the jacket on him, this coat. And in that moment, Jacob is crowning him king of his brothers, which, as you can imagine, went down really well. And uh, it gets worse because Joseph, Joseph likes the attention. And, uh, and, and he starts to have dreams. Joseph has these very vivid dreams of stars bowing down, of, of stalks of grain, 11 stalks of grain bowing down to one taller one. And he comes to the family dinner that night and he says, hey guys, I had a dream last night. And in my mind, I can picture all the guys going, what was it about? And he said, well, there were 11 stalks of grain and they came and they bowed down. And uh, all of the 11 stalks of grain that bowed down were you. And uh, I was the one you were bowing down to. Again, very popular, right? And uh, so he's kind of had enough. And so actually chapter 37 says that his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. Oh boy. It says that they could not even speak a kind word to him. Whew, okay. Uh, And so... With, with these visions and these dreams, the brothers decide, we've had enough. Let's get rid of our brother Joseph. And so one day, one day Jacob sends Joseph out to check on his brothers while they're tending the herds. So that means 11 of his brothers were out working, and Joseph just got to stay home and keep his feet up. And so uh, Joseph goes out, and you, the person who comes out and checks on you is your, is your manager, 
right? It's like um, when I worked at Panera Bread growing up and the Cavellis came, it was like freak out mode, right? Like, do not mess up this salad, Kyle. And I was terrible online um, on the food part. Uh, I was bad. I can cook now, but I couldn't, I couldn't remember like what went in what sandwich. And so there they are. And that was at the time when you, they like all stood there at the end of the bar and stared at you. And I would be like, <sighs> and uh, so Joseph is going out to check on them. And like as a manager and they see Joseph coming and they say, this is our chance. And so they grab Joseph and they yank his coat of many colors off him and they throw him into a pit and they say, and they have dinner and Joseph can hear them having dinner at the top of the pit, deciding how they're going to kill him. And uh, it, as luck would have it, some slavers come by. Slavers being people who buy and sell people into slavery. And one of them goes, hang on, why, not we, why don't we just sell him into slavery instead of killing him? And then what we'll do is we'll kill a lamb and we'll dip his coat in the blood. And then we go home, we'll say, hey, dad, um, Joseph was killed by a bear. And they're like, that's good. So they sell their brother into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. And they go home and they take the coat and they say, Dad, Joseph is dead. And from that moment on, Jacob assumes his favorite child is dead. Totally grieves him. So Joseph gets taken down to Egypt where he is sold into a a guy named Potiphar's home. Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's guard, which meant he had a pretty large household, a number of slaves, a number of servants. Um, um, And uh, (coughs) see, it's happening. It's happening. Help him, Jesus. Okay. Uh, and, and something happens where Potiphar is very impressed by uh, what, what happens. And Rebecca, just keep it on this one because the next slides are a surprise. So plot twist. Um, there, Potiphar is very impressed with this Joseph and kind of keeps giving him promotions. And soon Joseph isn't like his secretary. It's like he's his chief of staff. He is his Leo McGarry. And, uh, and so Joseph, Joseph is running the whole house because his administrative skill is quite great. And somebody else notices his administrative skill, Potiphar's wife, and she's like, I like your administrative skill, if you know what I mean. Um, and so she's like, you could administrate me anytime. And, uh, and so she uh, tries to kind of hook up with, with Joseph a couple times. If you don't know what hook up means, kids, go home and ask your mom. And uh, Joseph keeps saying no, he's a man of character. And so she gets so frustrated that one time she propositions him, he says no, and she takes his cloak. What is this guy with his jackets, right? Takes his cloak, and when he runs away, she, she says, he raped me. So Potiphar, who's he going to believe, this Hebrew slave or his wife? Answer is always wife, even if he liked the Hebrew slave better, right? And uh, so Joseph is thrown into prison. And a curious thing happens in prison. Again, the same thing in Potiphar's house. He kind of rises to prominence, and soon he's running the prison from the inside. He's kind of calling the shots. And uh, one day, the king's baker and the king's cupbearer are thrown into jail, and they're having some dreams, and Joseph interprets them. And uh, Joseph uh, interprets them. These guys get released from prison, and Joseph says, hey, do me a favor. Remember me when you go to Pharaoh's house. And they're like, yeah, buddy, we got your back. While the baker is executed and the cupbearer forgets about Joseph for two years. Now, here's why this is painful. The cupbearer of the king was in the presence of the king every day. The cupbearer had an opportunity, multiple opportunities every day to say to the pharaoh, hey, by the way, I met this guy in prison named Joseph, and don't let the fact that I met him in prison throw you. Uh, he, he has a lot of skill while well, the guy forgets until pharaoh starts having some dreams. 
Look with me at Genesis chapter 41. It says, two full years later, Joseph has been in a pit and been in slavery and been in jail, and he's waited two full years. It says, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River, and in his dream, he saw seven fat, healthy cows come up out of the river and graze in the marsh grass. And then he saw seven more cows come up behind them from the Nile, but these were scrawny and thin. And these cows stood beside the fat cows on the riverbank, and then the scrawny, thin cows ate the seven healthy fat cows. And at this point in the dream, Pharaoh woke up. Well, he goes back to sleep. He has another dream just like this. Seven stalks of grain that are healthy are kind of devoured by weeds. And pretty soon, Pharaoh's having this dream every night. He can't sleep. He calls on his court magicians and, and prophets to tell him what's going on. And, and they don't know. And Pharaoh's kind of getting that crazy look in his eyes that new parents have because he's not slept in days. And suddenly the cupbearer of the king goes, hey, by the way, there was this guy I met in prison named Joseph who could interpret dreams. And Pharaoh is desperate enough at this point. He's like, yeah, let's go. And so the text says that Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once and he was brought out of prison. And in verse 17 of chapter 41, Pharaoh tells Joseph the dream. And in verse 25, Joseph responds, both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he's about to do, that the seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin scrawny cows that came up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of famine. This will happen just as I have described it, for God has revealed to Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land, but afterward there will be seven years of famine. So great, I love this line, so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten. And then in verse 33, therefore Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of the crops during the seven good years, have them gather all that food, store it away, and then there will be enough years to eat during the years of famine. Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, sold into Potiphar's house where he is falsely accused of rape, where he is imprisoned and forgotten for years, stands in front of the king and says, this is what you should do. You should appoint a wise man. And Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, the most powerful nation in the ancient Near East, says, you've got the job. Joseph is hired. And in verse 41 it says, do I need a lozenge? <clears throat> Let's see where we get, but probably. Pharaoh said to Joseph, this is verse 41 of chapter 41. <clears throat> Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Oh, thank you. Steph had one too. This is a Ricola, and there's that. These are the best. Thank you. Let's just see what happens here. Okay, this tastes weird, but I'm going to trust you. Mm. What is it? What flavor is this? Chases the, the coffee just right, you know what I mean? <laughs> Verse 41, okay, it's working. I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen, and then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved in the, for the second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, kneel down. So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh. 
but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. All of this, by the way, happened to Joseph when he was 30. When he was 30. When it seems like things were at their worst, it finally turned around for Joseph. He is put in charge of all of the land of Egypt. Wherever he goes, uh, even Pharaoh says, no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. And in many ways, Joseph's life is the original Cinderella story. In many ways, Joseph's life... Joseph's life is the best rag to riches. Like from a pit in Canaan to royalty in Egypt, everything is turning around for him such that, look at verse 50. During this time, before the first of the famine years, two sons were born to Joseph and his wife. (coughs) Sorry, team. Joseph named his older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. He named his second son Ephraim. God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. In the naming of his children, you can probably hear that thing rattling around in my mouth in a gross way, huh? Love you. <clears throat> in the naming of the online recording is so interesting this week, guys. Hi, online. <clears throat> I'm going to do it on this side, see if that helps. In the naming of his children, in the naming of his children, Joseph declares something. Joseph declares something about his experience in Egypt. He declares that something has happened, that even in the midst of the worst, God has done something. And he doesn't attribute it to his hard work. He doesn't attribute it to the American dream or the Egyptian dream, as it were. He says, God, God is the one that has made me fruitful in the land of my sorrow. He says, he says, God is the one that has made me fruitful in the land of my sorrow. He said, God is the one that has caused me to forget all of my troubles and everyone in my father's family. And so the question is, how in the world does he come to this conclusion? How can he look back on all the terrible things that have happened to him and say, God did that? Flip back with me into chapter 39. Joseph in Potiphar's house Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. So he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar, and he made Joseph his personal attendant. The Lord was with Joseph. Look at uh, verse 20 of chapter 39 or 21, when he's in prison. But the Lord, was faith, the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love, his hesed. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. And before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Joseph somehow is able to look back and make radical declarations. God has caused me to forget. God has caused me to be fruitful. He looks back and he sees that in every single moment, there was God. 
that what happened to him, that being thrown into the pit, that being sold into slavery, that going into Potiphar's house, being falsely accused of rape, being forgotten in prison for years by his friends, that that wasn't like God forgetting about him. That wasn't because God ran out to get a coffee and it took him a little longer to get back. It wasn't that God wasn't mindful. In fact, it was that God was intimately present in the midst of the hardship and in the midst of the difficulty, and frankly, in a way that only God can do, was arranging circumstances. God the Father Almighty was arranging circumstances uh, and engaging this and twisting and turning what would have been a terrible, awful fate into something that only God could use, not only for the good of Joseph, but for the good of many. Somehow in the midst of your circumstances and mine, even as terrible as they are, there is God. And there is not a minute that he has left a room that you have been in. And somehow what he's doing in that room is not what we want him to do. He doesn't shut it down or make it end or turn it off. Instead, what he does is he walks with us through it and transforms us through it. God is not an easy button. God is not an easy button. God is not an eject button. The way that God engages with our suffering is by walking with us through it. And as far as we can tell here, Joseph is getting past his past. He's turning the corner. Good for you, Joseph. You're not letting what your brothers did to you kind of control you anymore. God's made me forget all my troubles and forget my father's family. And he's made me fruitful in this land. And in the life of Joseph, we see three things. We learn three things that help us get past our past. The first thing that we learn is that God's redemption in our lives, the way God works, makes sense to our stories. See, God wants to save and heal and deliver. He wants to redeem. Those are the big picture categories that scripture uses. But God, because he enters into relationship with us, custom fits and tailor makes those acts of redemption and salvation and deliverance in a way that makes sense to our stories. And for Joseph, that meant after a lifetime of favoritism, he was learning the difference between favoritism and God's favor. Do you see this? There was favor, there was favoritism in his home, and there was favor from God. See, here's the problem with favoritism, right? Favoritism is selfishness cloaked in affection. The reason Jacob made Joseph his favorite wasn't because like Joseph was smart or anything like that, it's because he could get something out of Joseph that he couldn't get from his other kids. Favoritism destroys families. It destroys parent-child relationships. It destroys sibling relationships. And it has the power to taint generations to come because Abraham's favorite son was his son Isaac. And Ishmael, Isaac's brother, knew it. And now four generations later, favoritism has gotten so bad that the only way the other brothers knew how to end it was to kill their brother. Hear me on this. Do not favor your children. And if you are like a favored child... That sucks. Actually, do you know what actually is the hidden secret? Being the favored child is awful. It is toxic. It is so much pressure, and you watch your siblings hating you for it, and you can't do anything about it. If you are a, if you are a parent who favors your child, and I know there's not a lot of parents in here, as there were at the other campus, if you do not this week call and call a family meeting, look your children in the eyes, and ask them to repent for your favoritism, like, may God's curse be upon you because you are destroying your family. You are, and you're going to wake up 20 years from now, and you're going to say, but I love them all so much, why don't they care? It's because they knew. They knew that you liked one of them better. It's because they knew. See, Joseph experiences, instead of favoritism, he experiences favor. It makes sense to his story. 
Instead of, instead of just this selfishness cloaked in affection, he actually experiences the affection and blessing and presence of God. That's favor. It was favor without strings. It was, it was this love and affection without strings attached. And Joseph got to experience that. A lot of you know, um, and if you don't, uh, Steph and I have been battling infertility for about four or five years now. We had two miscarriages in about a two-year period, um, three miscarriages in a two-year period. And I, was, I realized um, I was starting to believe a lie that our home was a place that life could not flourish. I was starting to believe a lie that our home, our house, our, our family was a place that life could not flourish. And then a lot of you know, in September, Sarah, who I actually went to Moody with, moved in with us. Aaron moved in with us in January. And I think they would all appreciate me being clear that they're not like together, Sarah and Aaron. Um, just so you know, um, if they were together, they wouldn't be living together in our home, right? And uh, the gift of having Sarah and Aaron in our home um, is that uh, it has made me realize that life, is, life can flourish in our home because Sarah and Aaron are like both in like radically like awesome places from where they first moved in with us. God redeems us in a way that makes sense to our stories. Do you see what I'm saying? So you have a terrible family life. You have a massive disconnection with your parents or maybe you just don't even really know how to like be a Christian parent. So God gives you spiritual mothers and fathers to like mentor you through that. God redeems us in a way that makes sense to our story. It's like he custom fits it. First thing is that God uh, makes, redeems us in a way that makes sense to our story. The second thing is that fruitfulness and suffering are not opposites. Joseph said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my trouble, in the land of my grief. See, there's this lie that suffering wants us to believe like, like that's all we're doing, Right? Infertility is all we get to do. That's it. And that's all my life is about. And you wake up and you're managing the problem and you go to bed and you're managing that problem. Suffering makes you believe that that's all you're here for. That's a problem in my marriage. That's it. My anxiety, my depression, that's it. Um, that's not how the kingdom works. In fact, the remarkable thing is we can be fruitful even in the midst of our suffering. Joseph was fruitful in the midst of his suffering. How? He did not just crawl under a bed and cry. One of my goals as your pastor, especially as I pastor millennials and young families, is to teach you resilience. Because as a generation, we have been taught that one bad thing happens and I need to bench myself. That's not how it works. Even in hard things, we have opportunity to use our gifts to bless others and to care for them. And here's the crazy thing. Second uh, Corinthians 1, you have to go there if you don't want to. 2 Corinthians 1, not only can we be made fruitful in our suffering, not only in the midst of our suffering can we be a blessing to others, when we are present to our suffering and walk through that with God and are transformed in it, we are even made more fruitful. Because 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4 says, God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. My, my parents divorced when I was in high school. And uh, I remember everybody knew I wanted to be a pastor. People in high school called me Pastor Kyle, which I guess come to think of it is the reason I don't want to be called that. Um, so um, we, uh, um, I remember everybody knew I wanted to be a pastor and a friend said to me, I mean, like three days later, like, you know what, Kyle, you want to be in ministry. God's totally going to use you, like going to use this to help you help other people. Okay, that's true. 
not the thing you want to hear like 72 hours after like he's not coming back, right? Don't lead with that if you can, right? But when you're present to your suffering, God transforms it. Like I didn't know the value of somebody walking into a hospital room to be with you until we were in the hospital, one of us was in the hospital and we needed somebody to be with us. And then you're like, oh, this is why this is nice, right? I didn't know like what my role was when people are grieving around funerals until like I stepped into that role and somebody stepped into it for me. Like somebody came alongside us while we were grieving. That was important. When we are comforted, we can share that same comfort with others. God wants to use the bad things that have happened to you to even help you be a blessing to others. It's true. The last thing is, God redeems us in ways that make sense to our stories. God somehow makes us fruitful even when we're suffering, and God is always, always present in our suffering. Almost in an annoying way. We're just saying this, there wasn't a day that you weren't by my side. There won't be a day that you let me fall. And all of my life, your love has been true. The trick and what helped Joseph get past his past really was the fact that he looked back on his story and saw where God was present, even in the crap. He looked back on his story and saw where God was present, even in the crap. He looked back and saw where God was present. And and this is a teeny tiny example. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was having a pretty bad week, a little discouraged and about a couple different things. And uh, I'm at Nova, where I basically live. And somebody taps me on the shoulder, and I look up. It's a guy named Alan. Alan's a missionary in Japan who I haven't seen for 10 years. Alan was like the first person to ever mentor me ever. And uh, I had reached out to him in October because they're here for a year, and we had tried to get together, and then I flaked out and got busy or whatever, and then there he is. So just even seeing him after 10 years and 40 pounds, um, after seeing him and, and seeing him like that, I was like, it's just nice to know that God is present here. Now, some of you have had awful things happen to you. I'm talking like abuse. I'm talking about like really awful things. And for me to say, like, let's go back and imagine where Jesus is present is about the most insulting thing you can think of anybody saying to you. But Leanne Payne is in a lot of writing around the idea of healing of memories, and it's about kind of returning to the places of our pain and our trauma and envisioning and looking for the presence of Jesus. How he was even there in the middle, like giving of himself and, and, and caring for us. The way that we get past our past is where we see Jesus even in the midst of the crap. Like when you heard the words, we're getting a divorce, Jesus was in the room. He was like standing right there. A person once told me about this lie that they had believed from some very Pentecostal-like speaker that had come and she went down to the altar. And this person said to her, they're going down the line and saying something to each one. And they said, you have the spirit of the Antichrist. And then they moved on. Life and death are in the power of the tongue that wrecked her life. She has believed a lie about herself her whole life. There's that one thing. And I said to her, I can't help but see Jesus standing there and he is so ticked off it's not even funny. And she looks at me and I said, not at you. He wants to like punch this person in the face. 
Because God says, if any of you lead my children astray, you are worthy of having a millstone tied around your neck. And if you don't know what a millstone is, it's a very big rock. A millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the bottom of the sea. So that's how he feels about this person. We believe all of these lies. There wasn't a day that you weren't by my side. But then this interesting thing happens. Poor Joseph. We're going to do the rest of his story because we've barely scratched the surface today. Joseph uh, <clears throat> says in chapter 41, verse 51, he says, God's made me forget all my troubles and all of my, my brother's family. He says, it doesn't matter. It's in the past. Chapter 42, handful of lines later. When Jacob heard, Joseph's dad, that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, why are you standing around looking at one another? That's awesome. That's a good line. Why are you standing around looking, like one, looking at one another? I heard there's grain down in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise, we'll die. Thanks, Dad. Good. So Joseph's ten older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain, but Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin, go with them for fear that some harm might come to him. See, now Joseph's brothers got theirs too because they thought, we'll get rid of the favorite. Everything will be fine. Dad just chose a new favorite. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt and went along with others to buy food. And since Joseph was governor in all of Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. Plot twist, right? When they arrived, they bowed down before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph, listen to this. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, having just said like the day before, I have forgotten all my brother's family, or like a few years before, right? A couple of lines later, Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke to them harshly. Where are you from? He said, from the land of Canaan, and we have come to buy food. Check this out. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him, and he remembered, he remembered. The guy who just said, I forgot, he remembered. He remembered the dreams he had about them many years before. Forgive and forget, it doesn't matter, it's in the past, I'm going to leave it back there, is not enough for God. God will stop at short, God will stop at nothing less than this, healing. Oh boy. God will stop at nothing less, he does not want anything less than healing. And for Joseph and for many of us, healing means the F word. It means forgiveness. I mean, it literally means looking back at the worst possible thing that happened to you, the worst possible thing that was done to you, thinking of that person and releasing them of the debt that they owe you for what, you, for what they did to you. Joseph is face-to-face, -face, not with one, but two, but not three, not four, but with ten of his brothers that tried to kill him a decade or so before. And he has to forgive them because God is not, is not settled on just like, forgive, forget, it doesn't matter in the past. God will not be settled until we are healed. So understand this about your father today, church, and then we're going to take communion. God is very, very interested in your healing. God is very, very interested in your healing, and he is going to direct your steps relentlessly until that happens. God, give us the grace uh, to walk with you even in the midst of pain and suffering. God, in the midst of our disappointments and our hurt and, our, um, and all of these things, God, I pray that you um, would uh, 
that you would come to my friends, come to my brothers and sisters today, and that you would kind of reshape their stories and that you would redeem them in a way uh, that makes sense to them. My friends, like God wants to redeem you and he wants to begin a process of doing that. And for Joseph, it took years, which might mean it might take years for us. It might mean a lot of crying, but God's desire is for our wholeness and our healing. And so Jesus, would you come and would you begin to stir some stuff up? Would you begin to stir some stuff up so that our past would remain in our past because it's been healed? Amen. Um, There is nothing that Joseph experienced that Jesus does not understand. In fact, Jesus is the new Joseph, sold into sold uh, sold to his death for a few pieces of silver, thrown into a pit, a grave, and yet God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In in the path of our brokenness is our healing. Somewhere along the line of being ripped and torn by our lives, Jesus wants to heal us. Uh, Somewhere along the lines, Jesus' blood is poured out for us so that it washes away the things that we have done and even the things that have been done to us. And the reason we come back to this table is because we need to be rooted in this story every week. We need to kind of come back to what is most true of us, right? We need to be drawn back in. And so you know this, I know this, everybody at everybody in this room is welcome to this table. If you have a pulse, Jesus offers himself for you today, here. Um, you come forward, we'll rip off a piece of the bread, hand it to you, dip it in the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, let us do this. Um, um, Aaron and um, Rebecca Anderson and Stephanie would you come here we pray that you would pour out your spirit on these gifts of bread and cup that they might become for us the body and blood of Christ that in the eating and drinking of them, we might be the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood, healed and made whole in your name. Amen. The table is open. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. And when they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort we have, been received, we have received. Verse five is the one that you don't want in your Bible. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. May you be showered with the comfort and joy of Jesus this week. Love you, we'll see you next time.